0: Chapter Eleven of the Middle of Things This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter Eleven What Happened in Paris. The man who presently walked in, a tall, gray-bearded, evidently prosperous person, dressed in the height of fashion, glanced keenly from one to the other of the two men who awaited him. "'Mr. Paul,' he inquired as he dropped into the chair which the old lawyer silently indicated at the side of his desk, "'one of your partners, no doubt?' he added, looking again at Viner." no sir replied mr Paul. this is mr viner who gave evidence in the case you want to see me about you can speak freely before him what is it you have to say mr armistead not perhaps very much but it may be of use answered the visitor the fact is that like most folk i read the accounts of this ashton murder in the newspapers and i gave particular attention to what was said by the man hyde at the inquest the other day It was what he said in regard to the man whom he alleges he saw leaving Lonsdale Passage that made me come specially to town to see you. I don't know, he went on glancing at the card which still lay on Mr. Paul's blotting pad, if you know my name at all. I'm a pretty well-known Lancashire manufacturer, and I was a member of Parliament for some years. For the Richdale Valley Division, I didn't put up again at the last general election. Mr. Paul bowed. "'Just so, Mr. Armistead,' he answered. "'And there's something you know about this case?' "'I know this,' replied Mr. Armistead. "'I met John Ashton in Paris some weeks ago. "'We were at the Hotel Bristol together. "'In fact, we met and introduced ourselves to each other in an odd way. "'We arrived at the Hotel Bristol at the same time, "'he from Italy, I from London, "'and we registered at the same moment. "'Now, I have a habit of always signing my name in full.' Armisted Ashton Armisted. I signed first. He followed. He looked at me and smiled. "'You've got one of my names anyway, sir,' he remarked, "'and I see you hail from where I hailed from many a long year ago.' "'Then you're a Lancashire man?' I said. "'I left Lancashire more years ago than I like to think of,' he answered with a laugh. "'And then we got talking, and he told me that he had emigrated to Australia when he was young, and that he was going back to England for the first time.' We had more talk during the two or three days that we were at the Bristol together, and we came to the conclusion that we were distantly related, a long way back. But he told me that, as far as he was aware, he had no close relations living, and when I suggested to him that he ought to go down to Lancashire and look up old scenes and old friends, he replied that he had no intention of doing so. He must, he said, have been completely forgotten in his native place by this time. "'Did he tell you what his native place was, Mr. Armistead?' asked Mr Paul, who had given Viner two or three expressive glances during the visitor's story. Yes, replied Mr Armistead, he did, Blackburn. He left it as a very young man. Well, said Mr Paul, there's a considerable amount of interest in what you tell us, for Mr Viner and myself have been making certain inquiries during the last twenty four hours, and we formed, or nearly formed, a theory which your information upsets. Ashtons of Blackburn, "'We must go into that, for we particularly want to know who Mr. John Ashton was. "'There's a great deal depending on it. "'Did he tell you more?' "'About himself, no,' replied the visitor, "'except that he'd been exceedingly fortunate in Australia, "'and had made a good deal of money and was going to settle down here in London. "'He took my address and said he would write and ask me to dine with him "'as soon as he got a house to his liking, "'and he did write only last week, inviting me to call next time I was in town.' Then I saw the accounts of his murder, in the papers, a very sad thing. "'A very mysterious thing,' remarked Mr. Paul. "'I wish we could get some light on it.' The visitor looked from one man to the other, and lowered his voice a little. "'It's possible I can give you a little,' he said. "'That, indeed, is the real reason why I set off to see you this morning.' You will remember that Hyde, the man who is charged with the murder, said, before the coroner, that as he turned into Longsdale Passage he saw, coming out of it, a tall man in black clothes, who was swathed to the very eyes in a big white muffler. "'Yes,' said Mr. Paul, "'well?' "'I saw such a man with Ashton in Paris,' answered Mr. Armistead. "'Hyde's description exactly tallies with what I myself should have said.' Mr. Paul looked at his visitor with still more interest and attention. "'Now, that really is of importance,' he exclaimed. "'If Hyde saw such a man as I believe he did, and you saw such a man, then that man must exist, and the facts that you saw him with Ashton, and that Hyde saw him in close proximity to the place where Ashton was murdered, are of the highest consequence. But you can tell us more, Mr. Armistead.' "'Unfortunately, very little.' replied the visitor what i saw was on the night before i left paris after it i never saw ashton again to speak of it was late at night do you know the rue royale there is at the end of it a well-known restaurant close to the plaza de la concorde i was sitting outside this about a quarter to eleven when i saw ashton and the men i am speaking of pass along the pavement in the direction of the madeleine What made me particularly notice the man was the fact that, although it was an unusually warm night, he was closely muffled in a big, white-silk handkerchief. It was swathed about his throat, his chin, his mouth—it reached, in fact, right up to his eyes. An odd thing on such a warm night! Ashton, who was in evening dress, had his light overcoat thrown well back. He was talking very volubly as they passed me— The other man was listening with evident attention. "'Would you know the man if you saw him again?' asked Viner. "'I should most certainly know him if I saw him dressed and muffled in the same way,' asserted Mr. Armistead, "'and I believe I could recognize him from his eyes, "'which indeed were all that I could really see of him. "'He was so muffled, I tell you, "'that it was impossible to see if he was a clean-shaven man or a bearded man.' But I did see his eyes, for he turned them for an instant full in the light of the restaurant. They were unusually dark, full, and brilliant. His glance would best be described as flashing. And I should say, from my impression at the time, and from what I remember of his dress, that he was a foreigner, probably an Italian. "'You didn't see this man at your hotel?' asked Mr. Paul. "'No, I never saw him except on this one occasion,' replied Mr. Armistead, and I did not see Ashton after that. I left Paris very early the next morning for Rouen, where I had some business. You think this matter of the man in the muffler important? Now that you've told us what you have, Mister Armistead, I think it's of the utmost importance and consequence to Hyde," answered Mister Paul. "You must see his solicitor, his Mister Viner's solicitor too, and offer to give evidence when Hyde is brought up again. It will be of the greatest help." "'There's no doubt to me at any rate that the man Hyde saw leaving the scene of the murder is the man you saw with Ashton in Paris. But now who is he? Ashton, as we happen to know, left his ship at Naples, and travelled to England through Italy and France. Is this man some fellow that he picked up on the way? His general appearance now, how did that strike you?' "'He was certainly a man of great distinction of manner,' declared Mr. Armistead. "'He had the air and bearing of—well, of a personage. "'I should say he was somebody, you know what I mean. "'A man of superior position and so on.' "'Viner!' exclaimed Mr. Paul. "'That man must be found. "'There must be people in London who saw him that night. "'People can't disappear like that. "'We'll set to work on that track. "'Find him we must.' Now, all the evidence goes to show that he and Ashton were in company that night. Probably they'd been dining together, and he was accompanying Ashton to his house. How is it that no one at all has come forward to say that Ashton was seen with this man? It's real extraordinary. Mr. Armistead shook his head. "'There's one thing you're forgetting, aren't you?' he said. "'Ashton and this man mayn't have been in each other's company many minutes when the murder took place. Ashton may have been trapped.' I don't know much about criminal affairs, but in reading the accounts of the proceedings before the magistrate and the coroner, an idea struck me which, so far as I could gather from the newspapers, didn't seem to have struck any one else. "'What's that?' demanded Mr. Paul. "'All ideas are welcome.' "'Well, this,' replied Mr. Armistead. "'In one of the London newspapers there was a plan, a rough sketch-map of the passage in which the murder took place.' I gathered from it that on each side of that passage there are yards or gardens at the backs of houses. The houses on one side belong to some terrace, on the other to the square, Markendale Square, in which Ashton lived. Now may it not be that that murder itself was actually committed in one of those houses, and that the body was carried out through a yard or garden, to where it was found." Ashton was a big and heavy man, observed Viner. No man could have carried him. "'Just so,' agreed Mr. Armistead. "'But don't you think there's a probability that more than one man was engaged in this affair? The man in the muffler hurrying away may have only been one of several.' "'Aye,' said Mr. Paul, with a deep sigh, "'there's something in all that. It may be, as you say, a conspiracy, if we only knew the real object of the crime. But it appears to be becoming increasingly difficult to find it.' "'What is it?' he asked, as his clerk came into the room with a card. "'I'm engaged.' The clerk came on, however, laid the card before his employer, and whispered a few words to him. "'A moment, then. I'll ring,' said Mr. Paul. He turned to his two companions, as the clerk retired and closed the door, and smiled as he held up the card. "'Here's another man who wants to tell me something about the Ashton case,' he exclaimed. "'It's been quite a stroke of luck having that paragraph in the newspapers "'asking for information from anybody who could give it.' "'What's this?' asked Viner. "'Mr. Jan Van Horen, Diamond Merchant,' read Mr. Paul from the card. "'5A3 Hatton Garden.' "'Ah!' Mr. Armistead exclaimed. "'Diamonds!' "'I shouldn't wonder if you're right,' remarked Mr. Paul. "'Diamonds, I believe, are to Hatton Garden what cabbages and carrots are to Covent.' He touched his bell and the clerk appeared. "'Bring Mr. Van Horne this way,' he said. There entered, hat in hand, bowing all around, a little fat, beady-eyed man whose beard was blue-black and glossy, whose lips were red, whose nose was his most decided feature. His hat was new and shining, his black overcoat of superfine cloth was ornamented with a collar of undoubted sable. He carried a gold-mounted umbrella. But there was one thing on him that, put all the rest of his finery in the shade. In the folds of his artistically arranged black satin stock lay a pearl, such a pearl as few folk ever have the privilege of seeing. It was as big as a moderately sized hazel nut, and the three men who looked at it knew that it was something wonderful. "'Take a chair, Mr. Van Horen said Mr. Paul genially. "'You want to tell me something about this Ashton case? Very much obliged to you, I'm sure.' "'These gentlemen are both interested considerably in that case, "'and if you can give me any information that will throw any light on it.' "'Mr. Van Horn deposited his plump figure in a convenient chair "'and looked round the circle of faces. "'One thing there is I don't see in them newspapers, Mr. Paul,' "'he said in strongly nasal accents, "'maybe nobody don't know nothings about it, what? "'So I come to tell you what I know, see? Something.' "'Very good of you, I'm sure.' replied Mr. Paul. What may it be? Mr. Van Horn made a significant grimace that seemed to imply that there was a great deal to be told. "'Some of us, my way, we know Mr. Ashton,' he said. "'In Hatton Garden, you understand. Dealers in diamonds, see. Me and Hess and errands and one or two more. Business.' "'You've done business with Mr. Ashton?' asked the old lawyer. "'Just so.' "'No, done nothing.' "'replied Mr. Van Horne, "'Not a shilling's worth, but we know him. "'He came down there, and we don't see nothing in them papers "'that we expected to see, and today two or three of us "'we lunched together, and has, he says, "'them lawyer men, he says, they want information. "'You go and give it to them. So!' "'Well, what is it?' demanded Mr. Paul. Mr. Van Horne leaned forward and looked from one face to another. "'Ashton!' He said, "'Was carrying a big diamond about in his pocket-book!' Mr. Armistead let a slight exclamation escape his lips. Viner glanced at Mr. Paul, and Mr. Paul fastened his eyes on his latest collar. "'Mr. Ashton was carrying a big diamond about in his pocket-book,' he said. "'Ah, have you seen it?' "'Several times I see it,' replied Mr. Van Horn. "'My trade, don't it? Others of us, we see it, too.' "'He wanted to sell it,' suggested Mr. Paul. "'There ain't so many people could afford to buy it,' said Mr. Van Horn. "'Why?' exclaimed Mr. Paul. "'Was it so valuable, then?' The diamond merchant shrugged his shoulders and waved the gold-mounted umbrella, which he was carefully nursing in his tightly-gloved hands. "'Oh, well,' he answered, Fifty or sixty thousand pounds it was worth, yes. End of chapter 11. What happened in Paris? Chapter 12 of The Middle of Things This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. THE MIDDLE OF THINGS BY J. S. FLETCHER CHAPTER Twelve, THE GREY MARE INN The three men who heard this announcement were conscious that at this point the Ashton case entered upon an entirely new phase. Armistead's mind was swept clean away from the episode in Paris, viners from the revelations at Marketstoke, Mr. Paul suddenly realized that here at last was something material and tangible, which opened out all sorts of possibilities. And he voiced the thoughts of his two companions as he turned in amazement on the fat little man who sat complacently nursing his umbrella. "'What?' he exclaimed. "'You mean to tell me that Ashton was walking about London "'with a diamond worth fifty thousand pounds in his pocket? "'Incredible!' "'I don't see nothing so very incredible about it,' retorted Mr. Van Horne. "'I could show you men what carries diamonds worth twice that much "'in their pockets about the garden.' "'That's business,' said Mr. Paul. "'I've heard of such things, but you all know each other over there, I'm told. "'Ashton wasn't a diamond merchant.' god bless me he was probably murdered for that stone that's just what i came to see about eh suggested mr van Horen. you see tain't nothing if he show that diamond to me and such as me we don't think nothing o' that all in our way our business but if he gets shown it to other people in public places what just so asserted mr paul sheer tempting of providence i'm amazed "'But how did you get to know Mr. Ashton and to hear of this diamond? "'Did he come to you?' "'Called on me at my office,' answered Mr. Van Horne laconically. "'Pulled out the diamond and asked me what I thought it was worth. "'Well, I introduced him to some of the other boys in the garden. "'See, he showed them the diamond, too. "'We reckon it's worth what I say. 50 to sixty thousand. "'So—' "'Did he want to sell it?' demanded Mr. Paul. Oh, well, yes, he wouldn't have minded, replied the diamond merchant. Wasn't particular about it, you know, rich man. Did he tell you anything about it, how he got it, and so on? asked mr Paul. Was there any history attached to it? Oh, nothing much, answered mr Van Horn. He told me he'd had it some years, got it in Australia, where he came from to London. Got it cheap, he did, lots of things like that in our business and carried it in his pocket!' exclaimed Mr. Paul. He stared hard at Mr. Van Horne as if his mind was revolving some unpleasant idea. "'I suppose all the people you introduced him to are all right?' he asked. "'Oh, they're all right!' affirmed Mr. Van Horn with a laugh. "'Give my word for any of em, eh?' "'But, Ashton, if he pulls that diamond out to show to anybody out of the trade, you understand, "'well, then there's lots of fellows in this town would settle him to get hold of it. What?' "'I think you're right,' said Mr. Paul. He glanced at Viner. "'This puts a new complexion on affairs,' he remarked. "'We shall have to let the police know of this. "'I'm much obliged to you, Mr. Van Horn. "'You won't mind giving evidence about this if it's necessary.' "'Don't mind nothing,' said Mr. Van Horn. "'Me and the other boys, we think you ought to know about that diamond, see?' He went away, and Mr. Paul turned to Vinder and Armistead. "'I shouldn't wonder if we're getting at something like a real clue,' he said. "'It seems evident that Ashton was not very particular about showing his diamond to people. "'If he'd show it readily to a lot of Hatton Garden diamond merchants, "'who, after all, were strangers to him, "'how do we know that he wouldn't show it to other men?' The fact is, wealthy men like that are often very careless about their possessions. Possibly a diamond worth fifty or sixty thousand pounds wasn't of so much importance in Ashton's eyes as it would have been in—well, in mine. And how do we know that he didn't show the diamond to the man with the muffler in Paris, and that the fellow followed him there and murdered him for it?' "'Possible,' said Armistead. "'Doesn't it strike you as strange, though?' "'Suggested Viner, that the first news of this diamond comes from Van Horen. "'One would have thought that Ashton would have mentioned it "'and shown it to Miss Wickham and Mrs. Killenhall. "'Yet, apparently, he never did.' "'Yes, that does seem odd,' asserted Mr. Paul. "'But there seems to be no end of oddity in this case, "'and there's one thing that must be done at once. "'We must have a full and thorough search and examination of all Ashton's effects. "'His house must be thoroughly searched for papers and so on.' "'Viner, I suppose you're going home. Do me the favour to call at Miss Wickham's and tell her that I propose to come there at ten o'clock to-morrow morning, to go through Ashton's desk and his various belongings with her. Surely there must be something discoverable that will throw more light on the matter. And in the meantime, Viner, don't say anything to her about our journey to Marketstoke. Leave that for a while.' Viner went away from Crawl, Paul, and Rattenburys, in company with Armistead. Outside, the Lancashire businessman gave him a shrewd glance. "'I very much doubt if that diamond has anything whatever to do with Ashton's murder,' he said. "'From what I saw of him, he seemed to me to be a very practical man, full of business aptitude and common sense, and I don't believe that he'd make a practice of walking about London with a diamond of that value in his pocket. It's all very well that he should have it in his pocket when he went down to Hatton Garden. He had a purpose.' but that he should always carry it. No, I don't credit that, Mr. Viner.' "'I can scarcely credit such a foolish thing myself,' said Viner. "'But where is the diamond?' "'Perhaps you'll find it to-morrow,' suggested Armistead. "'The man should be sure to have some place in his house where he kept his valuables. I shall be curious to hear.' "'Are you staying in town?' inquired Viner. "'I shall be at the Hotel Cecil for fortnight at least,' answered Armistead. "'And if I can be of any use to you, or Mr. Paul, you've only to ring me up there. "'You've no doubt yourself, I think, that the unfortunate fellow Hyde is innocent.' "'None,' said Viner. "'No doubt, whatever. "'But the police have a strong case against him, and unless we can find the actual murderer, "'I'm afraid Hyde's in a very dangerous position.' "'Well,' said Armistead, "'in these cases you never know what a sudden and unexpected turn of events may do.' "'That man with a muffler is a chap you want to get hold of, I'm sure of that.' Viner went home and dined with his aunt and their two guests, Hyde's sisters, whom he endeavoured to cheer up by saying that things were developing as favourably as could be expected, and that he hoped to have good news for them ere long. They were simple souls, pathetically grateful for any scrap of sympathy and comfort, and he strove to appear more confident about the chances of clearing this unlucky brother than he really felt." it was his intention to go round to number seven during the evening to deliver mr Paul's message to miss wickham but before he rose from his own table a message arrived by miss wickham's parlour-maid would mr viner be kind enough to come to the house at once at this, Viner excused himself to his guests and hurried round number seven to find Miss Wickham and Mrs. Killenhall, now in mourning garments, in company with a little man whom Viner once recognized as a well-known tradesman of Westbourne Grove, a florist and fruiterer named Barleyfield, who was patronized by all the well-to-do folk of the neighborhood. He smiled, and bowed as Viner entered the room, and turned to Miss Wickham, as if suggesting that she should explain his presence. "'Oh, Mr. Viner,' said Miss Wickham, "'I'm so sorry to send for you so hurriedly, but Mr. Barleyfield came to tell us that he w- could give some information about Mr. Ashton, and as Mr. Paw isn't available, and I don't like to send for police inspector, I thought that you, perhaps—' "'To be sure,' said Viner, "'what is it, Mr. Barleyfield?' mr barleyfield who had obviously attired himself in his sunday raiment for the purposes of his call and had further shown respect for the occasion by wearing a black cravat smiled as he looked from the two ladies to viner well mr viner he answered i'll tell you what it is it may help a bit in clearing up things for i understand there's a great deal of mystery about mr ashton's death "'Now I'm told, sir, that nobody, especially these good ladies, knows nothing about what the deceased gentleman used to do with himself of an evening, as a rule. Just so—well, you know, Mr. Viner, a tradesman like myself generally knows a good deal about the people of his neighbourhood. I knew Mr. Ashton very well, indeed. He was a good customer of mine, and sometimes he'd stop and have a bit of chat with me. And I can tell you where he very often spent an hour or two of an evening.' "'Yes, where?' asked Viner. "'At the Grey Mare Inn, sir,' answered Barleyfield promptly. "'I have often seen him there myself.' "'The Grey Mare Inn!' exclaimed Viner, while Mrs. Killenhall and Miss Wickham looked at each other wonderingly. "'Where is that? It sounds like the name of some village tavern.' "'Ah, but you don't know this part of London as I do, sir,' said Barleyfield with a knowing smile. "'If you did, you'd know the Grey Mare Inn well enough. It's an institution.' It's a real old-fashioned place. Between Westbourne Grove and Notting Hill, one of the very last of the old taverns with a tea-garden behind it and a bar-parlour of a very comfortable sort, where various old foggies of the neighbourhood gather at an evening and smoke churchwarden pipes and tell tales of the olden days. I rather gathered, from what I saw, that it was the old atmosphere that attracted Mr. Ashton, made him think of bygone England, you know, Mr. Viner. "'And you say he went there regularly?' "'asked Viner. "'I've seen him there a great deal, sir, for I usually turn in there for half an hour or so myself of an evening, when business is over and I've had my supper,' answered Barleyfield. "'I should say that he went there four or five nights a week.' "'And no doubt conversed with the people he met there,' suggested Viner. "'He was a friendly, sociable man, sir,' said Barleyfield. "'Yes, he was fond of a talk, but there was one man there that he seemed to associate with— "'An elderly superior gentleman, whose name I don't know, "'though I'm familiar enough with his appearance. "'Him and Mr. Ashton I've often seen sitting in a particular corner, "'smoking their cigars, and talking together. "'And, if it's of any importance, I saw them talking like that "'at the Grey Mare the very evening, that—well, that Mr. Ashton died, Mr. Viner.' "'What time was that?' asked Viner. "'About the usual time, sir, nine-thirty or so.' replied barleyfield I generally look in about that time nine thirty to ten did you leave them talking there inquired viner they were there when I left sir at a quarter past ten answered barleyfield talking in their usual corner and you say you don't know who this man is i don't i know him by sight but he's a comparatively recent comer to the grey mare i've noticed him for a year or so not longer viner glanced at the two ladies "'I suppose you never heard Mr. Ashton mention the Grey Mare?' he asked. "'We never heard Mr. Ashton say anything about his movements,' answered Miss Wickham. "'We used to wonder sometimes if he'd joined a club or if he had friends that we knew nothing about.' "'Well,' said Viner, turning to the florist, "'do you think you could take me to the Grey Mare, Mr. Barleyfield?' "'Nothing easier, sir. Open to one and all.' "'Then, if you've the time to spare, we'll go now,' said Viner.' He lingered behind a moment to tell Miss Wickham of mr Paul's appointment for the morning and then went away with Barleyfield in the Notting Hill direction. I suppose you've been at the Grey Mare since Mr Ashton's death he asked as they walked along. Once or twice, sir, replied Barleyfield. And you've no doubt heard the murder discussed suggested Viner. I've heard it discussed hard enough, sir, there and elsewhere, replied the florist but at the grey mare itself I don't think anybody knew that this man who'd been murdered was the same as a grey-bearded gentleman who used to drop in there sometimes. They didn't when I was last in any way. Perhaps this gentleman I've mentioned to you might know. Mr. Ashton might have told his name to him. But you know how it is in these places, Mr. Viner. People drop in even regularly, and fellow customers may have a bit of talk with them without having the least idea who they are.' "'Between you and me, sir, I came to the conclusion that Mr. Ashton was a man who liked to see a bit of what we'll call informal, old-fashioned tavern-life, and he hit on this place by accident in one of his walks round, and took to coming where he could be at his ease amongst strangers.' "'No doubt,' agreed Viner. He followed his guide through various squares and streets, until they came to the object of their pilgrimage, a four-square old-fashioned house set back a little from the road, with a swinging sign in front and a garden at the side. Barleyfield led him through this garden to a side-door whence they passed into a roomy, low-ceilinged parlour, which reminded Viner of old coaching prints. He could scarcely have believed it possible that such a pre-Victorian room could be found in London. There were several men in it, and he nudged his companion's elbow. "'Let us sit down in a quiet corner and have something to drink,' he said. "'I just want to take a look at this place and its frequenters.' Barleyfield led him to a nook near the chimney corner and beckoned to an aproned boy who hung about with a tray under his arm. But before Viner could give an order, his companion touched his arm and motioned towards the door. "'Here's the gentleman Mr. Ashton used to talk to,' he whispered. A tall man just coming in. End of chapter twelve. The Gray Mare Inn. Chapter thirteen of The Middle of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. CHAPTER Thirteen, THE JAPANESE CABINET Remembering that Barleyfield had said that the man who now entered had been in Ashton's company in that very room on the evening of the murder, Viner looked at him with keen interest and speculation. He was a tall, well-built, clean-shaven man, of professional appearance and of a large, heavy, solemn face, the evidently usual pallor of which was deepened by his black overcoat and cravat an eminently respectable, slow-going, unimaginative man, in Viner's opinion, and of a type which one may see by the dozen in the presence of the temple, a man who would be content to do a day's work in a placid fashion, and who cherished no ambition to set the Thames on fire. Certainly, so Viner thought from appearances, not the man to commit a peculiarly daring murder. Nevertheless, knowing what he did, he watched him closely. The newcomer, on entering, glanced at once at a quiet corner of the room, and seeing it unoccupied, turned to the bar, where the landlord, who was as old-fashioned as his surroundings, was glancing over the evening paper. He asked for whiskey and soda, and when he took up the glass, drank slowly and thoughtfully. Suddenly he turned to the landlord. "'Have you seen that gentleman lately that I've sometimes talked to in the corner there?' he asked. The landlord glanced across the room and shook his head. "'Can't say that I have, sir,' he answered. "'The tallest gentleman with a grey beard? No, he hasn't been in this last night or two. The other man sat down his glass and drew something from his pocket. "'I promised to bring him a specimen of some cigars I bought lately,' he said, laying an envelope on the counter. "'I can't stop to-night. If he should come in, will you give him that? He'll know what it is.' "'Good heavens!' muttered Viner as he turned in surprise to Barleyfield. "'These men evidently don't know that the man they're talking about is—murdered!' whispered Barleyfield with a grim smile. "'Nothing wonderful in that, Mr. Viner. They haven't connected Mr. Ashton with the man they're mentioning, that's all.' "'And yet Ashton's portrait has been in the papers!' exclaimed Viner. "'It amazes me!' "'Ay, just so, sir,' said Barleyfield. "'But a hundred yards in London takes you into another world, Mr. Viner.' For all practical purposes Lonsdale Passage, though it's only a mile away, is as much separated from this spot as New York is from London. Well, that's the man I told you of, sir.' The man in question drank off the remaining contents of his glass, nodded to the landlord and walked out, and Viner was suddenly minded to do something towards getting information. "'Look here,' he said, "'I'm going to ask that landlord a question or two. Come with me.' He went up to the bar, Barleyfield following in close attendance, and gave the landlord a significant glance. "'Can I have a word with you in private?' he asked. The landlord looked his questioner over and promptly opened a flap in the counter. "'Step inside, sir,' he said, indicating a door in the rear. Private room there, sir." Viner and Barleyfield walked into a little, snugly furnished sitting-room. The landlord followed and closed the door. "'Do you happen to know the name of the gentleman who was speaking to you just now?' asked Viner, going straight to his point. "'I've a very particular reason for wishing to know it.' "'No more idea than I have of yours, sir,' replied the landlord with a shrewd glance. Viner pulled out a card and laid it on the table. "'That is my name,' he said. "'You and the gentleman who has just gone out were speaking just now of another gentleman whom he used to meet here, who used to sit with him in that far corner.' "'Just so. You don't know the name of that gentleman, either?' "'No more than I know the others, sir,' replied the landlord, shaking his head. "'Lord bless you. Folks may come in here for a year or two, and unless they happen to be neighbors of mine, I don't know who they are. Now there's your friend there,' he went on, indicating Barleyfield with a smile, "'I know his face as that of a customer, but I don't know who he is.' That gentleman who's just gone out, he's been in the habit of dropping in here for a twelfth month, maybe, but I never remember hearing his name. As for the gentleman he referred to, why, I know him as one there's come in here pretty regular for the last few weeks, but I don't know his name either. "'Have you heard of the murder in Lonsdale Passage?' asked Viner. "'Markendale way, yes,' answered the landlord with awakening interest. "'Why is it anything to do?' Viner saw an illustrated paper lying on a side-table and caught it up. There was a portrait of Ashton in it, and he held it up before the landlord. "'Don't you recognize that?' he asked. The landlord started and stared. "'Bless my life and soul!' he exclaimed. "'Why, surely that's very like the gentleman I just referred to. I should say it was the very man!' "'It is the very man,' said Viner with emphasis. "'The man for whom your customer, who's just gone out, left the envelope.' Now, this man who was murdered in Lonsdale Passage was here in your parlour for some time on the evening of the night on which he was murdered, and he was then in conversation with the man who has just gone out. Naturally, therefore, I should like to know that man's name.' "'You're not a detective,' suggested the landlord. "'Not at all,' replied Viner. "'I was a neighbour of Mr. Ashton's, and I am interested—deeply interested—in an attempt to clear up the mystery of his death. Things keep coming out.' I didn't know until this evening that Ashton spent some time here at your house, the night he was killed, but when I got to know I came along to make one or two inquiries. "'Bless me!' said the landlord, who was still staring at the portrait. "'Yes, that's a gentleman, sure enough. I've often wondered who he was. Pleasant sociable sort he was, poor fellow. Now I come to think of it, I remember him being in here that night, last time, of course, he was ever in.' He was talking to that gentleman who's just gone. In fact, they left together. They left together, did they? exclaimed Viner with a sharp glance at Barleyfield. Ah, what time was that now? As near as I can recollect, about 10.15 to 10.30, answered the landlord. They'd been talking together for a good hour in that corner where they usually sat. But, dear me— He went on, looking from one to the other of his two visitors. "'I'm quite sure that gentleman who's just left doesn't know of this murder. Why, you heard him ask for the other gentleman and leave him some cigars that he'd promised.' "'Just so—which makes it all the stranger,' said Viner. "'Well, I'm much obliged to you, landlord, and for this time being just keep the matter of this talk strictly to yourself. You understand?' "'As you wish, sir,' assented the landlord. "'I shan't say anything.' You wouldn't like me to find out this gentleman's name. Somebody'll know him. My own idea is that he lives in this part. He began coming in here of an evening about a year since. "'No, do nothing at present,' said Viner. "'The inquiries are only beginning.' He impressed the same obligation of silence on Barleyfield as they went away, and the florist readily understood. "'No hard work for me to hold my tongue, Mr. Viner,' he said. "'We tradespeople are pretty well trained to that, sir.' "'There's things and secrets I could tell, but upon my word, I don't ever remember quite such a case as this, and I'll expect it'll be like most cases of the sort.' "'What do you mean?' asked Viner. "'Oh, there'll be a sudden flash of light on it, sir, all of a sudden,' replied Barleyfield, "'and then it'll be as clear as noonday.' "'I don't know where it's coming from,' muttered Viner. "'I don't even see a rift in the clouds yet.' He had been at work for an hour or two with Miss Wickham and Mr. Paul next morning, searching for whatever might be discovered among Ashton's effects, before he saw any reason to alter this opinion. The bunch of keys discovered in the murdered man's pocket had been duly delivered to Miss Wickham by the police, and she handed them over to the old solicitor with full license to open whatever they secured. But both mr Paul and Viner saw at once that Ashton had been one of those men who have no habit of locking up things. In all that roomy house he had but one room which he kept himself-a small twelve foot square apartment on the ground floor, in which, they said, he used to spend an hour or two of a morning. It contained little in the way of ornament or comfort-a solid writing desk with a hard chair, an easy chair by the fireplace, a sofa against the wall, a map of London and a picture or two, a shelf of old books, a collection of walking-sticks and umbrellas, these made up all there was to see. And upon examination the desk yielded next to nothing. One drawer contained a cash-box, a check-book, a pass-book, some sixty or seventy pounds in notes, gold and silver lay in the cash-box. The stubs of the cheques revealed nothing but the payment of tradesmen's bills. The passbook showed that an enormous balance lay at the bank. In another drawer rested a collection of tradesmen's books. Mr. Ashton, said Mrs. Killenhall, used to pay his tradesmen every week. These books had been handed to him on the very evening of his death, for settlement next morning." Evidently a most methodical man remarked Mr. Paul, which makes it all the more remarkable that so few papers are discoverable. You'd have thought that in his longish life he'd have accumulated a good many documents that he wanted to keep. But documents there were next to none. Several of the drawers of the desk were empty, save for stationery. One contained a bunch of letters, tied up with blue ribbon. These, on examination, proved to be letters written by Miss Wickham at school in England to her guardian in Australia— Miss Wickham present, while Mr. Paul and Viner searched, showed some emotion at the sight of them. "'I used to write to him once a month,' she said. "'I had no idea that he had kept the letters, though.' The two men went silently on with their search, but there was no further result. Ashton did not appear to have kept any letters or papers relative to his life or doings prior to his coming to England. Private documents of any sort he seemed to have none— and whatever business had taken him to Marketstoke, they could find no written reference to it, nor could they discover anything about the diamond of which Mr. Van Horen had spoken. They went upstairs to his bedroom and examined the drawers, cabinets, and dressing-case. They found nothing. "'This is distinctly disappointing,' remarked Mr. Paul, when he and Viner returned to the little room. "'I never knew a man who left such small evidence behind him.' It's quite evident to me that there's nothing whatever in this house that's going to be of any use to us. I wonder if he rented a box at any of the safe-deposit places. He must have had documents of some sort. In that case we should surely have found a key and perhaps a receipt for the rent of the box,' suggested Viner. "'I should have thought he'd have had a safe in his own house,' he added. "'But we don't hear of one.' Mr. Paul looked around the room as if suspicious that Ashton might have hidden papers in the stuffing of the sofa or the easy-chair. "'I wonder if there's anything in that,' he said suddenly. "'It looks like a receptacle of some sort.' Viner turned and saw the old lawyer pointing to a curious Japanese cabinet which stood in the middle of the marble mantelpiece, the only really notable ornament in the room. Mr. Paul laid hold of it and uttered a surprised exclamation. That's a tremendous weight for so small a thing, he said. Feel it. Viner took hold of the cabinet, an affair of some eighteen inches in height and twelve in depth, and came to the conclusion that it was heavily weighted with lead. He lifted it down to the desk, giving it a slight shake. I took it for a cigar cabinet, he remarked. How does it open? Have you a key that will fit it? but upon examination there was no keyhole, and nothing to show how the door was opened. "'I see what this is,' said Viner, after looking closely over the cabinet, to back, front, and sides. "'It opens by a trick—a secret. Probably you press something somewhere and the door flies open. But where?' "'Try,' counseled Mr. Paul. "'There's something inside. I heard it when you shook the thing.' It took Viner ten minutes to find out the secret.' He would not have found it at all but for accident. But pressing here and pulling there, he suddenly touched what appeared to be no more than a cleverly inserted rivet in the ebony surface. There was a sharp click, and the panelled front flew open. "'There is something!' exclaimed Mr. Paul. "'Papers!' He drew out a bundle of papers folded in a strong sheet of cartridge paper and sealed back and front. The enveloping cover was old and faded, the ribbon which had been tied round the bundle was discoloured by age, the wax of the seals was cracked all over the surface. "'No inscription, no writing,' said Mr. Paul. "'Now I wonder what's in here?' "'Shall I fetch Miss Wickham?' suggested Viner. Mr. Paul hesitated. "'No,' he said at last, "'I think not. Let us first find out what this packet contains. I'll take the responsibility.' He cut the ribbons beneath the seals, and presently revealed a number of letters, old and yellow, in a woman's handwriting, and after a hasty glance at one or two of the uppermost, he turned to Viner with an exclamation that signified much. Viner, he said, here is indeed a find. These are letters written by the Countess of Ellingham to her son, Lord Marketstoke, when he was a schoolboy at Eton. End of chapter 13 THE JAPANESE CABINET chapter 14 of the middle of things this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the middle of things by j s fletcher chapter 14 the ellingham motto viner looked over mr paul's shoulder at the letters there were numbers of them all neatly folded and arranged A faint scent of dried flowers rose from them as the old lawyer spread them out on the desk. "'Which Countess of Ellingham?' "'And which Lord Marketstoke?' asked Viner. "'There have been—must have been—several during the last century.' "'The Lord Marketstoke, I mean, is the one who disappeared,' answered Mr. Paul. "'We've no concern with any other. Look at these dates. We know that if he were living he would now be a man of sixty-one or so.' Therefore he'd be at school about forty-five years ago. Now look here. He went on, rapidly turning the letters over. Compare these dates. They run through two or three years. They were all of forty-three to forty-six years since. You see how they're signed. You see how they're addressed. There's no doubt about it, Finer. This is a collection of letters written by the seventh Countess of Ellingham to her elder son, Lord Marketstoke, when he was at Eton. How came they into Ashton's possession, I wonder? "'asked Viner. "'It's all of a piece,' exclaimed Mr. Paul. "'All of a piece with Ashton's visit to Marketstoke. "'All of a piece with the facts that Avis was a favourite name with the Cape Grey family, "'and that one of the holders of the title married a Wickham. "'Viner, there's no doubt whatever in my mind "'that either Ashton was Lord Marketstoke, or that he knew the man who was.' "'You remember what Armistead told us remarked Viner, that Ashton told him in Paris that he, Ashton, hailed from Lancashire? "'Then he knew the missing man, and got these papers from him,' declared the old lawyer. "'But why? Ah, now, I have an idea. It may be that Marketstoke, dying out there in Australia, handed these things to Ashton and asked him to give them to some members of the Cave Gray family, perhaps an aunt or a cousin or so on.' "'and that Ashton went down to Marketstoke "'to find out what relations were still in existence. "'That may be it. "'That would solve the problem.' "'No,' said Viner, with sudden emphasis. "'He made sure that the door of the little room was closed, "'and then went up to the old lawyer's elbow. "'Is that really all you can think of?' "'He asked, with a keen glance. "'As for me, why, I'm thinking of something "'that seems absolutely obvious.' "'What then?' demanded Mr. Paul. "'Tell me.' Viner pointed towards the door. "'Haven't we heard already that a man named Wickham "'handed over his daughter Avis to Ashton's Care and Gardenship?' "'he asked. "'Doesn't that seem to be an established fact?' "'No doubt of it,' assented Mr. Paul. "'Well?' "'In my opinion,' said Viner quietly, "'Wickham was the missing lord of Marketstoke.' Mr. Paul, who was still turning over the letters, examining their dates, let them slip out of his hands and gasped. "'By George!' he exclaimed in a wandering voice. "'It may be, possibly is. "'Then, in that case, that girl outside there—' "'Well?' asked Viner, after a pause. "'Mr. Paul made a puzzled gesture and shook his head, as if in amazement. "'In that case, if Wickham was the missing Lord Marketstoke, "'and this girl is his daughter, she's—' "'He broke off, and became still more puzzled. "'Upon my honour!' he exclaimed. "'I don't know who she is.' "'What do you mean?' asked Viner. "'She's his daughter, of course, Wickham's. "'Only in that case, I mean, if he was really Lord Marketstoke, "'her proper name, I suppose, is Cave Grey. Mr. Paul looked his young assistant over with an amused expression. "'You haven't the old practitioner's flair, Viner, my boy,' he said. "'When one's got to my age and seen a number of queer things and happenings, "'one's quick to see possible cases.' Look here, if Wickham was really Lord Marketstoke, and that girl across the hall is his daughter, she's probably—I say probably, for I don't know if the succession in this case goes with the female line—Countess of Ellingham in her own right. Viner looked surprised. Is that really so? Would it be so? he asked. It may be, I'm not sure, replied Mr. Paul. As I say, I don't know how the succession runs in this particular instance. There are, as you are aware, several peeresses in their own rights, twenty-four or five at least. Some are very ancient peerages. I know that three, furnivale and Fackenberg and Conyers, go right back to the thirteenth century. Three others, Beaumont, Darcy de Gnaeath, and Zorch of Haringworth, date from the fourteenth. "'I'm not sure of this Ellingham peerage, but I'll find out when I get back to my office. "'However, granting the premises, and if the peerage does continue in the female line, "'it will be, as I say, this girl's the rightful holder of the title.' "'Viner made no immediate answer, and Mr. Paul began to put up the letters in their original wrappings. "'Regular romance, isn't it, if it is so?' he exclaimed. "'Extraordinary!' "'Shall you tell her?' asked Viner." Mr. Paul considered the direct question while he completed his task. "'No,' he said at last, "'not at present. She evidently knows nothing, and she'd better be left in complete ignorance for a while. You see, Viner, as I've pointed out to you several times, there isn't a paper or a document of any description extent which refers to her. Nothing in my hands, nothing in the banker's hands, nothing here.' and yet supposing her father wickham to have been lord marketstoke and to have entrusted his secret to ashton at the same time that he gave him the guardianship of his daughter he must have given ashton papers to prove his and her identity must where are they do you know what i think said viner i think if i'm to put it in plain language that ashton carried those papers on him and that he was murdered for the possession of them Mr. Paul nodded and put the packet of letters in his pocket. "'I shouldn't be surprised,' he answered. "'It's a very probable theory, my boy, but it presupposes one thing and makes one horribly suspicious of another.' "'Yes?' inquired Viner. "'It presupposes that Ashton lets somebody into the secret.' replied Mr. Paul, and it makes one suspect that the person to whom he did reveal it had such personal interest in suppressing it, that he went to the length of murdering Ashton before Ashton could tell it to anyone else. How does that strike you, Viner? "'It's this, and not the diamond,' declared Viner doggedly. "'I've a sort of absolute intuition that I'm right.' "'I think so, too,' assented the old lawyer dryly. "'The fifty-thousand-pound diamond is a side-mine. Very well, now we know a lot, you and I.' and we're going to solve matters, and we're not going to say a word to this young lady at present, that's settled, but I want to ask her some questions. Come along. He led the way across the hall to the dining-room, where a reminder of Ashton's death met his and Viner's view as soon as they had crossed the threshold. The funeral was to take place next day, and Mrs. Killenhall and Miss Wickham were contemplating a massive wreath of flowers which had evidently just arrived from the florists, and been deposited on the centre-table." "'All we can do for him, you know,' murmured Mrs. Killenhall, with a glance at the two men. "'He—he has so few friends here, poor man.' "'That remark, ma'am,' observed Mr. Paul, "'is apropos of a subject that I want to ask Miss Wickham two or three questions about. "'Friends, now. Miss Wickham, you always understood that Mr. Ashton and your father were very close friends, I believe?' "'I always understood so, yes, Mr. Paul,' replied Miss Wickham. Did he ever tell you much about your father? No, very little indeed. He never told me more than that they knew each other very well-in Australia, that my father died out there, comparatively young, and that he left me in his, mr Ashton's care. Did he ever tell you whether your father left you any money? demanded the old lawyer. Miss Wickham looked surprised. Oh yes, she answered, I thought you'd know that. My father left me a good deal of money. Didn't mr Ashton tell you? Never a word. "'said Mr. Paul. "'Now, where is it, then?' "'In my bank,' replied Miss Wickham promptly. "'The London and Universal. "'When Mr. Ashton fetched me away from school and brought me here, "'he told me that he had twelve thousand pounds of mine, "'which my father had left me, "'and handed it over to me then and there, "'and took me to the London and Universal bank, "'where I opened an account with it.' "'Spent any of it?' asked Mr. Paul dryly. "'Only a few pounds,' answered Miss Wickham. The old solicitor glanced at Viner, who, while these private matters were being inquired to, was affecting to examine the pictures on the walls. "'Most extraordinary,' he muttered. "'All this convinces me that Ashton must have had papers and documents. These must have been, however. We don't know where they are.' "'But there would surely be, for instance, your father's will, Miss Wickham. I suppose you've never seen such a document. No, to be sure. You left all to Ashton. Well, now, do you remember your father?' "'Only just—' And very faintly, Mr. Paul, replied Miss Wickham, you must remember I was little more than five years old. Can you remember what he was like? I think he was a big, tall man, but it's a mere impression. Listen, said Mr. Paul, did you ever at any time hear Mr. Ashton make any reference—I'm talking now of the last few weeks—to the Ellingham family, or to the Earl of Ellingham? Never, replied Miss Wickham, never heard of them. He never— Mrs. Killenhall was showing signs of a wish to speak, and Mr. Paul turned to her. "'Have you, ma'am?' he asked. "'Yes,' said Mrs. Killenhall. "'I have. It was one night when Miss Wickham was out. You were at Mrs. Murray Sinclair's, my dear, and Mr. Ashton and I dined alone. He asked if I remembered the famous Ellingham case some years ago, something about the succession to the title. He said he'd read it in the colonial papers. Of course I remembered it very well.' "'Well, ma'am,' said Mr. Paul, "'and what then?' "'I think that was all,' answered Mrs. Killenhall. "'He merely remarked that it was an odd case, and said no more.' "'What made him mention it?' asked Mr. Paul. "'Oh, we'd been talking about romances of the peerage,' replied Mrs. Killenhall. "'I had told him of several.' "'You're well up in the peerage, ma'am,' suggested the old lawyer. "'I know my Burke and my debrett pretty thoroughly,' said Mrs. Killenhall. "'Very interesting, of course.' Mr. Paul, who was sitting close to Miss Wickham, suddenly pointed to a gold locket, which she wore. "'Where did you get that, my dear?' he asked. "'Unusual device, isn't it?' "'Mr. Ashton gave it to me a few weeks ago,' answered Miss Wickham. "'He said it had belonged to my father.' The old lawyer, bent nearer, looked more closely at the locket, and got up. "'Elegant old thing,' he said. "'Not made yesterday, that. "'Well, ladies, you will see me, for this very sad occasion.' "'He waved a hand at the wreath of flowers to-morrow. "'In the meantime, if there is anything you want done, "'our young friend here is close at hand. "'Just now, however, I want him.' "'Viner,' observed Paul, when they had left the house, "'it's very odd how unobservant some people are. "'Now, there's that woman we've just left, Mrs. Killenhall, "'who says that she's well up in her debride and her Burke, "'and there, seen by her many a time, "'is that locket which Miss Wickham is wearing, "'and she's never noticed it.' "'Never, I mean, notice what's on it. "'Why, I saw it and its significance instantly just now, "'which was the first time I'd seen it. "'What is it that's on it?' asked Viner. "'After we came back from Marketstoke,' replied Mr. Paul, "'I looked up the Cave Gray family and their peerage. "'That locket bears their device and motto. "'The device is a closed fist, grasping a handful of blades of wheat. "'The motto is Have and Hold.' "'Viner assures fate that girl's father was the missing Lord Marketstoke, "'and Ashton knew the secret. "'I'm convinced of it. "'I'm positive of it. "'And now, see the extraordinary position in which we are all placed. "'Ashton's dead, and there isn't one scrap of paper to show "'what it was that he really knew. "'Nothing. "'Not one written line.' "'Because, as I said before, he was murdered for his papers,' "'affirmed Viner. "'I'm sure of that as you are of the rest.' I dare say you're right, agreed Mr. Paul, but, as I've said before, that presupposes that Ashton told somebody the secret. Now, who? Was it the man he was with in Paris? And if so, who is that man? But it's useless speculating. I've made up my mind to a certain course, Finer. Tomorrow, after the funeral, I'm going to call on the present Lord Ellingham. His townhouse is in Hartford Street, and— i know he's in town and ask him if he has heard anything of a mysterious nature relating to his long-missing uncle we may hear something you come with me next day toward the middle of the afternoon mr paul and viner got out of a taxicab in park lane and walked down hertford street the old lawyer explaining the course he was about to take this is a young man not long come of age he said he'll be quite well acquainted however with the family history and if anything's happened lately "'I dare say I can get him to talk. He—what is it?' Viner had suddenly gripped his companion's arm and pulled him to a halt. He was looking ahead at the house, at which they were about to call, and there, just being shown out by a footman, was the man whom he had seen at the old-fashioned tavern in Notting Hill, and with him a tall, good-looking man, whom he had never seen before. End of chapter fourteen. The Ellingham Motto. Chapter fifteen. Of the Middle of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter fifteen. The Present Holder. Mr. Paul turned sharply on his companion as Viner pulled him up. He saw the direction of Viner's suddenly arrested gaze, and looked from him to the two men, who had now walked down the steps of the house and were advancing towards them. "'What is it?' he asked. "'Those fellows are coming away from Lord Ellingham's house. You seem to know them.' "'One of them,' murmured Viner, "'the clean-shaven man. Look at him.' The two men came on in close, evidently absorbed conversation, passed Mr. Paul and Viner without as much as a glance at them, and went along in the direction of Park Lane. "'Well?' demanded Mr. Paul. "'The clean-shaven man is the man I told you of, the man who was in conversation with Ashton at that tavern in Notting Hill the night Ashton was murdered,' answered Viner. "'The other man I don't know.' Mr. Paul turned and looked after the retreating figures. "'You're sure of that?' he asked. "'Certain,' replied Viner. "'I should know him anywhere.' Mr. Paul came to another halt, glancing first at the two men, now well up the street, and then at the somewhat sombre front of Ellingham House. "'Now this is an extraordinary thing, Viner,' he exclaimed. "'There's the man who, you say, was with Ashton not very long before he came to his end, and we find him coming away, presumably from Lord Ellingham, certainly from Lord Ellingham's house. What on earth does it mean? And I wonder who the man is.' "'What I'd like to know,' said Viner, "'is who is the other man?' But as you say, it is certainly a very curious thing that we should find the first man, evidently, in touch with Lord Ellingham, considering our recent discoveries. But what are you going to do?' "'Going in here,' affirmed Mr. Paul to the fountain-head, "'we may get to know something. Have you a card?' The footman who took the cards looked doubtfully at them and their presenters. "'His lordship is just going out,' he said, glancing over his shoulder, "'I don't know.'" Mr. Paul pointed to the name of his firm at the corner of his card. "'I think Lord Ellingham will see me,' he said. "'Tell his lordship I shall not detain him many minutes if he will be kind enough to give me an interview.'" The man went away to return in a few minutes and to lead the callers into a room at the rear of the hall, Wherein, his back to the fire, his look and attitude one of puzzled surprise, stood a very young man, dressed in the height of fashion, who, as his servant had said, was obviously just ready to go out. Viner, remembering what had brought him and Mr. Paul there, looked at Lord Ellingham closely. He seemed to be frank, ingenious, and decidedly youthful. But there was something decidedly practical and business-like in his greeting of his visitors. "'I'm afraid I can't give you very long, Mr. Paul,' he said, glancing instinctively at the old lawyer. "'I've a most important engagement in half an hour, and it won't be put off. But I can give you ten minutes.' "'I am deeply obliged to your lordship,' answered Mr. Paul, as your lordship will have seen from my card. I am one of the partners in Crawl, Paul, and Rattenbury, a firm not at all unknown, I think. Allow me to introduce my friend and Mr. Viner, a gentleman who is deeply concerned and interested in the matter I want to mention to your lordship. Lord Ellingham responded politely to Viner's bow, and drew two chairs forward. "'Sit down, Mr. Paul, sit down, Mr. Viner,' he said." He dropped into a chair near a desk, which stood in the centre of the room, and looked interrogatively at his elder visitor. "'Have you some business to discuss, Mr. Paul?' he asked. "'Some business, my lord, which I confess at once, is of extraordinary nature,' answered the old lawyer. "'I will go straight to it. "'Your lordship has doubtless read in the newspapers of the murder of a man named Ashton in Lonsdale Passage in the Bayswater District.' Lord Ellingham glanced at a pile of newspapers which lay on a side-table. "'Yes,' he answered, "'I have. I've been much interested in it as a murder. A curious and mysterious case, don't you think?' "'We,' replied Mr. Paul, waving a hand toward Viner, "'know it to be a much more mysterious case than anybody could gather from the newspaper accounts, for they know little who have written them, and we, who are behind the scenes, know a great deal.' Now your lordship will have seen that a young man, an actor named Langton Hyde, has been arrested and charged, and is on remand. This unfortunate fellow was an old schoolmate of Mr. Viner. They were at rugby together, and Mr. Viner, and I may say I myself also, is convinced beyond doubt of his entire innocence, and we want to clear him. We are doing all we can to clear him. And it is because of this that we have ventured to call on your lordship. Oh! exclaimed Lord Ellingham, but what can I do? How do I come in? My lord, said mister Paul in his most solemn manner, I will go straight to this point also. We have reason to feel sure, from undoubted evidence, that Mr. John Ashton, a very wealthy man, who had recently come from Australia, where he had lived for a great many years, to settle here in London, had in his possession, when he was murdered, certain highly important papers relating to your lordship's family, and that he was murdered for the sake of them. The puzzled expression which Viner had noted in Lord Ellingham's boyish face when they entered the room grew more and more marked as Mr. Paul proceeded, and he turned on the old lawyer at the end with a stare of amazement. "'You really think that?' he exclaimed. "'I shall be very much surprised if I'm not right,' declared Mr. Paul. "'But what papers?' asked Lord Ellingham. "'And what, how could this, Mr. Ashton, who you say, came from Australia, be in possession of papers relating to my family? I never heard of him!' "'Your lordship,' said Mr. Paul, "'is doubtless well aware that some years ago there was a very strange, shall we call it, romance, in your family. A very remarkable episode, anyway, a most unusual—' "'You mean the strange disappearance of my uncle, this Lord Marketstoke?' interrupted Lord Ellingham with a smile. "'Oh, of course. I know all about that.' "'Very well, my lord,' continued Mr. Paul. "'Then your lordship is aware that Lord Marketstoke was believed to have gone to the colonies, Australia or New Zealand, and was lost there. His death was presumed.' Now Ashton came from Australia, and, as I say, we believe him to have brought with him certain highly important papers relative to Lord Marketstoke, whom we think to have been well known to him at one time. Indeed, we felt sure that Ashton knew Lord Marketstoke's secret. Now, my lord, we are also confident that whoever killed John Ashton did so in order to get hold of certain papers which... I feel certain Ashton made a habit of carrying on his person papers relating to his friend lord marketstoke's identity lord ellingham remained silent for a moment looking from one visitor to another it was very clear to viner that some train of thought had been aroused in him and that he was closely pursuing it he fixed his gaze at last on the old lawyer mr paul he said quietly "'Have you any proof—undoubted proof—that Mr. Ashton did possess papers relating to my long-missing uncle?' "'Yes,' answered Mr. Poyle. "'I have.' He pulled out the bundle of papers which he and Viner had unearthed from the Japanese cabinet. This—it is a packet of letters written by the Seventh Countess of Ellingham to her elder son, the Lord Marketstoke we are talking of, when he was a boy at Eton— "'Your lordship will probably recognize your grandmother's handwriting.' "'Lord Ellingham bent over the letter which Mr. Paul spread before him. "'Yes,' he said, "'I know the writing quite well. "'And these were in Mr. Ashton's possession.' "'We have just found them, Mr. Viner and I, in a cabinet in his house,' replied Mr. Paul. "'They are the only papers we have so far been able to bring to light.' "'But, as I have said, we are convinced there were others, much more important ones, in his possession, probably in his pocket-book.' "'Lord Ellingham handed the letters back. "'You think that this Mr. Ashton was in possession of a secret relating to the missing man, my uncle, Lord Marketstoke?' he asked. "'I am convinced of it,' declared Mr. Paul.' Lord Ellingham glanced shrewdly at his visitors. "'I should like to know what it was,' he said. "'Your lordship feels as I do,' remarked Mr. Paul. "'But now I should like to ask a question which arises out of this visit. "'As we approached your lordship's door just now, we saw leaving it two men. "'One of them my friend Mr. Viner immediately recognized. "'He does not know who the man is. "'Which of the two men do you mean?' interrupted lord ellingham i may as well say that they had just left me the clean-shaven man answered viner whom mr viner knows for a fact to have been in ashton's company only an hour or so before ashton's murder lord ellingham looked at viner in obvious surprise but you do not know who he is he exclaimed no replied viner i don't But there is no doubt of the truth of what Mr. Paul has just said. This man was certainly with Mr. Ashton at a tavern in Notting Hill from about 9.30 to 10.30 on the evening of Ashton's death. In fact, they left the tavern together. The young nobleman suddenly pulled open a drawer in his desk, produced a box of cigarettes, and silently offered it to his visitors. He lighted a cigarette himself, and for a moment smoked in silence. It seemed to Viner that his youthful face had grown unusually grave and thoughtful. "'Mr. Paul,' he said at last, "'I am immensely surprised by what you've told me, and all the more so because this is the second surprise I've had this afternoon. I may as well tell you that the two gentlemen whom you saw going away just now brought me some very astonishing news. Yours comes right on top of it.' "'And, if you please, I'd rather not say any more about it just now, but I'm going to make a proposal to you. Will you, and Mr. Viner, if you'll be so good, meet me to-morrow morning, say at noon, at my solicitors' offices?' "'With pleasure,' responded Mr. Paul. "'Your lordship's solicitors are?' Carless and Driver, Lincoln's Inn Fields,' answered Lord Ellingham. "'Friends of ours,' said Mr. Paul, "'we will meet your lordship there at twelve o'clock to the minute.' "'And you'll bring that with you?' suggested Lord Ellingham, pointing to the packet of letters which Mr. Paul held in his hand. "'Just so, my lord,' assented Mr. Paul, "'and we'll be ready to tell all we know, for there are further details.' Outside the house the old lawyer gripped Viner's elbow. "'That boy knows something.' he said with a meaning smile. "'He's astute enough for his age, smart youngster. But what does he know? Those two men have told him something. Viner, we must find out who that clean-shaven man is. I have some idea that I have seen him before. I shouldn't be at all surprised if he's a solicitor. We may have seen him in some court or other. But in that case I wonder he didn't recognize me.' "'He didn't look at you,' replied Viner. He and the other man were too much absorbed in whatever it was they were talking about. I have been wondering since I first saw him at the tavern, he continued, if I ought not to tell the police what I know about him, I mean, that he was certainly in Ashton's company on the evening of the murder. What do you think? I think not at present, replied Mr. Paul it seems evident unless indeed it was all a piece of bluff and it may have been that this man is or was when you saw him just as ignorant as the landlord of that place was that the men who used to drop in there and ashton were one and the same person no let the police go on their own lines where on others we shall hear of this man again whoever he is now i must get back to my office come there at half-past 11 tomorrow morning viner and we'll go on to carless and driver's viner went thoughtfully homeward ruminating over the events of the day and entered his house to find his two guests the sisters of the unlucky hyde in floods of tears and miss pankridge looking unusually grave the elder miss hyde sprang up at sight of him and held a tear-soaked handkerchief towards him in pantomimic appeal "'Oh, Mr. Viner!' she exclaimed, "'you are so kind and so clever. I am sure you'll see a way out of this. It looks, oh, so very black, and so very much against him. But, oh, dear, Mr. Viner, there must be some explanation.' "'But what is it?' asked Viner, looking from one to the other. "'What has happened? Has any one been here?' "'Miss Pankridge silently handed to her nephew an early edition of one of the evening newspapers "'and pointed to a paragraph in large type, and Viner rapidly read it over to the accompaniment "'of the younger Miss Hyde's sobs. "'A sensational discovery in connection with the recent murder of Mr. Ashton "'in Lonsdale Passage, Bayswater, was made in the early hours of this morning.' charles fisher a greengrocer carrying on business in the harrow road found in his woodshed concealed in a nook in the wall a parcel containing mr ashton's gold watch and chain and a diamond ring he immediately communicated with the police and these valuables are now in their possession it will be remembered that langton hyde the young actor who is charged with murder and who is now on remand stated at the coroner's inquest that he passed the night on which the crime was committed in a shed in this neighbourhood. Viner read the news twice over. Then a sudden idea occurred to him, and he turned to leave the room. I don't think you need be particularly alarmed about this, he said to the weeping sisters. Cheer up till I return. I am going round to the police. End of chapter 15